This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Alcohol Experiment, a free 30-day challenge designed to interrupt your patterns, give you control, restore your health, and put you back in touch with the version of you who doesn't need alcohol to cope, relax, or enjoy life. More than 220,000 people have already tried The Alcohol Experiment for themselves and have seen improved sleep, increased happiness, reduced anxiety, and so much more. Join thousands in this inspiring, hopeful, and exciting program where you examine your beliefs and reconnect with the best version of you without ever feeling like you're missing out. Start today for free at alcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Jim. Welcome, Jim. How are you? I am very good. It is so good to be here with you, Annie. Oh, it's so good to have you. It's awesome. I'm looking forward to this. So why don't you um, walk us all the way back to the beginning? Where did your history with alcohol begin? Oh, okay. My beginning started pretty young. Because, well, you know, uh, when I was a kid, everybody saw all of the adults drinking. And so when I got to, I don't even know what I was, probably eight, nine, 10, it was really neat. My dad would take a can of beer and split it between, well, it started out as three of us and then turned out to be four of us. So you'd get a quarter of a can of beer, which was a big deal then. You know, right. you got to be like the adults, but it, it had happened on like New Year's and Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we all looked forward to it. And, you know, like when you first tasted it, oh, it's terrible. Couldn't understand. What's the big deal? Why does everybody think this is so great? But after a while, you know, you, uh, you look forward to growing up and being able to get your own and stand around with all of the adults and, uh, and socialize with it. And then from, you know, so, you know, out of childhood, you get into adolescence, you get into 15, 16, 17, and all of the guys, all of the uh, guys on the baseball team and the football team, you know, uh, there was, it was always cool to drink on the weekend, two beers or three beers, and he was high as Georgia Pine. And, you know, you'd go to school dances and, uh, what we would do is we'd stand outside of delis or liquor stores or grocery stores and we'd ask the kids that were a couple of years older than us, the 18 and 19 year olds to buy us beer. And, you know, they felt really good about it because they remember when they were our age and we were doing, the, they were doing the same thing. And I know when I got to be 18, it just followed suit that my brother who was a year younger and my sister who was two years younger would be asking me the same thing. Could I buy him something to drink? It wasn't like we drank all of the time. It was just an occasional, um, you know, uh, a, a couple of beers on the weekends to fit in with the rest of society. And back in the seventies, late sixties, early seventies, New York state had a driver's license that was paper. So if you were careful, you could erase just the last number of your birth year, put it in a typewriter, and all of a sudden you were older. Wow. And you could, you could get into some of the college bars. And everybody looked, you know, all, the kids that were 19 and 20 looked like the 16 and 17-year-olds. And so you, that was your first experience with going out with uh, friends was 
you know, kind of sneaking into the bars. I was talking to somebody in a, a meeting once and I told them that the first time I ever saw Billy Joel was in a bar with fake ID at 17 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> it wasn't so cool. It was just the way it went. Then when I got to college, it got a little bit, a cr little crazier. Uh, I went to St. John's University in Queens, and I, which was about six miles from where I lived in Brooklyn. So uh, back and forth to school, you know, it, it seemed like every single corner had a bar. I mean, they were everywhere. It was so common in the city to have, you could have a bar with bars or a corner with bars across the street. They were everywhere. And um, so it seemed like the entire university was in the bars on the weekend. I didn't, have, when I went to pharmacy school, I didn't have time to really drink during the week. It, school was too hard. And plus I lived on my own with a couple of roommates. I um, drove a taxi at night, would sit there and study by cab light. Maybe on the way home, we'd grab a beer or two. My roommates also drove. And I also worked in a pharmacy. And, um, but you know, the weekends when you weren't working, they were made for going out with your friends. That was seemed like the thing to do. I also belonged to a fraternity when I was in school and the Greek week parties and just fraternities in general were pretty crazy. We'd get to like Greek week, for example, you had to get together and there'd be chug races. You get two mugs of beer and chug one and four guys in a row would chug it and then you'd start over and you'd do it again and then you'd go out in the back and you'd get sick so you could come back and drink more. So, oh, I don't know, I look back, it was just so nuts. It was, and uh, we used to always get a fraternity house, uh, you know, being in New York City, well out on the end of Long Island was the Hamptons, the Hampton beaches. So we'd get a fraternity house and we'd be out there and start off in the morning and all day at the beach. Well, one day me and one of my fraternity brothers got stuck out on the beach with a garbage can and a garbage can was full of beer. So we didn't really consider it being stuck. We carried the can home. It was about two and a half miles, stop every once in a while. By the time we got back, there wasn't very much left. Oh, it was terrible. One of the things that was the biggest problem was when we were able to start drinking when we were 18 years old. And we all started earlier because you could get a fake ID. It's not like the new licenses. Was just the national, that was just before the national law was 21. Yeah, yeah, it was 18. And it was 18 most of the places in the country. And also with the new modern technology, you'll see when your kids get bigger, because when my children were young, when they got their driver's license right across the front, it said under 21 and it was laminated so they couldn't do anything with it. When we were young, we had paper licenses. So we would just change them. And what you do is you tell motor vehicle that you lost your license. So they'd give you a new license. So you had a real license with your right birth date on it and a fake light or an altered one to get in and out of the bars. So, the other, the other problem with starting people that young at 18 is they barely know how to drive and you are turning them loose with a two-ton bullet. You know, that, yeah. I had in my teens and early 20s, I had four accidents that were alcohol related. And 
I didn't get hurt, but the accidents were so stupid. I mean, just really dumb things and actually didn't know anything about alcohol. I didn't know what a blackout was. But, you know, you'd kind of nod out and come to, and the next thing you know, you were hitting a fence or a car. Um, I had this one accident. I was on my way home from the Bronx back to Brooklyn where I lived. And I'm coming up to this traffic light and the light turns yellow and there's a car in front of me. So I figured, okay, he's going to speed up, you know, to go through the light. So I sped up and he slammed on the brakes and I hit the back of him. He got out of the car and I got out of the car and I was like, oh, what happened? Why, why'd you stop? And he, he says, well, well, are you all right? He asked me if I was okay. Okay, well, he was drunker than I was. He fell down when he got out of his car. And then he gave me my, his phone number so I could call him if his car had any damage, just oh. to give me an idea what he was driving like. And oh, I look at it and I just, I think, so by the, so when I did finally stop drinking or when I finally got better at driving while I was drunk, you know, the accidents went away. I didn't do that anymore. But when I finally, when I really think back to, um, those years, I lost several friends to drunk driving, as we all did. And and I look back and you'd think, okay, they'll say, oh, geez, that was so unfortunate. Or, oh, why did that have to happen? Well, now that I don't drink, I look back and then I say, you know, like this is an occupational hazard. This is an accident waiting to happen. Sooner or later, if you drive when you're drinking, you are going to get in an accident. It's almost like uh, homicide, suicide on wheels when you're drinking and you're driving. Yeah. And, and it's just, oh, and I, and I look, and now that I no longer drink, I think of all of the people that get caught up in this carnage that we cause, you know? When my daughter was in college, she had a professor. The professor, it, it, he, he was the honors professor and the head of the language department. Well, as luck, fate had it, he was at one party drinking too much. Another professor also in the same language department was at a different party. They kind of must have left somewhere around the same time. The head of the language department was driving by when the other professor walked off the curb. He hit him and he killed him. Oh my God. So he lost his tenure his job and ended up the person who he hits family pleaded for leniency. And this professor who lost his job at the university ended up doing weekends in jail for like two years. Wow. Five years ago, a friend of mine who's a drinking buddy or former, former drinking buddy's nephew, 19 years old, two weeks shy of his 20th birthday was killed by a drunk driver who ran a red light, hit him broadside. It was two weeks shy of his 20th birthday. Now, Kane was, oh, I knew the kid since he was in, uh, since he was a baby. You know, I had him as, knew him, had him as a patient. He was a wonderful kid. His uncle, who was my drinking buddy and his uncle's brother, the father of Kane, wired my, a couple of houses that I built. So I can still see this kid running through the, uh, the trusses, pulling wire. And his personality is just wonderful. He was in college to become a law enforcement, to become a New York State trooper, 
when this happened. And, you know, the, the, he was straight A's, just an awesome child. And that's what I mean. He, there's somebody innocently caught up in this, this terrible, uh, terrible, you know, drug. It's just, so uh, when, all right, so now, all right, when I graduated college, I, I um, got my pharmacy license and I still didn't drink. I still worked. I started out working in New York City, city health and hospitals. And I also worked part-time in a pharmacy. Wouldn't drink during the week, had too much responsibility for taking care of patients, but would lose it on the weekends. And when you're making a pharmacist salary, you could afford to do whatever you want. You, you could really have a good time. In fact, living in New York City, I used to drive up to Vermont to a ski house that I belonged to and party up there. I was on the, I used to ski with the ski patrol. And so every weekend I was up there going crazy. You'd be straight during the week and lose the weekends and be in a, and when you had your withdrawal during the week, you just figured your withdrawal, since nobody knew what, you know, what it was, you just figured that out was job related stress. Yeah. So you never even just, you just passed it right off. So I guess I was about 26 or 27 and, and I'm, left New York City and I moved up to the Syracuse area. And at the time, I would have moved anywhere to get out of New York City. It was just time. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working for the VA hospital up here. And then eventually, uh, I, that's where I met my wife, had my first two kids. And eventually I ended up in the Togus main VA hospital as the chief. Well, the skiing was better because Maine is close to Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine has some pretty neat. So going there had its other reasons also. But in New Hampshire, alcohol or New Hampshire has no tax. And so you, you'd one, you'd have these huge state run liquor stores and two, there'd be no tax on it. So that's when I found scotch and bourbon. And so of course, I didn't stop drinking beer. I'd still have a couple of beers once in a while, but I found hard stuff now too. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that was bad about being up in Maine was, yeah, I had a great job working in a VA hospital, but I didn't have a license in Maine, so I couldn't moonlight or work part-time in a drugstore. It drove me crazy. So I only stayed up there for a year and then I moved back to New York and that's when we bought a community pharmacy, which I ran for 32 years. Well, I had friends that were up in Maine that would come down to visit me. And I had other New York friends that would go up to Maine and I'd buy three or four cases of scotch or bourbon at a time, cheap. They'd bring it back and forth. It was, uh, and so this went on for years. And again, didn't really drink during the week because I owned my own pharmacy, worked 60 hours a week, six days a week. My drinking probably went down during the time that I owned the pharmacy, but I would still have a drink or one or two beers at night. And I would always pass off the withdrawal as um, work-related tension. You know, I owned my own pharmacy, it was busy. You know, so the stress of owning your own pharmacy was why I, uh, didn't sleep well. I also didn't sleep well because it was hereditary. My father didn't sleep well. 
his brothers didn't sleep well, but everybody drank. So everybody didn't sleep well because, you know, they all had their one or two drinks a day. And my wife uh, at the time would constantly be complaining about my just, just a, a drink or two and, and also my excess drinking on the weekends. And she would always tell me that, you know, I'm just wasting my time drinking and I'm going to lose everything. You, you know, it, it was, it was quite an experience. She never drank until after we were divorced. She never drank, <laughs> but uh, she never drank at all when we were, um, you know, when we were early years running the store. So one year, one time, when we got a pharmacist to work a long weekend, we took a trip up to Toronto because I did surgical fittings, you know, back braces, arm, knee braces, special, you know, where you'd bend the metal to fit the knee, right, you know, exact fitting. So I took this class up in Toronto. Well, when we were up there, my wife says, well, you know, you're going to take a break. You can only have one beer. You can't drink anymore. That didn't go over that good either because what I did was I went down to the car and I had my own one or two beers, you know, a sneak drink and of course got caught and that really uh, opened a big can of worms. I was deemed an alcoholic, you know, I, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything without drinking. And so I quit for a month to prove that I was not an alcoholic. Nobody knew what alcohol use disorder was. It was, wasn't even heard of. And so I quit drinking for a month and the first five or six days were terrible, which was normal withdrawal. And I did good. You know, I managed to go my 30 days just like you would in an alcohol experiment. And then I proved that I wasn't an alcoholic. And then I went back to my normal, you know, one or two drinks a day and everything was kind of back to normal. Around that time, I also hired a part-time pharmacist because my store was extremely popular and extremely busy. So when I hired the part-time pharmacist, now I had more hours off. And we also bought a condominium down in Florida. So we were back and forth all of the time to Florida. And um, I probably went away with my uh, friends as much or more than I did with my family. And it start, that's kind of where the isolation stuff started. And the more I go away, the more I drink, the more the young pharmacist that I hired child got older, the more she wanted to work. And when she got to, um, you know, where she was working half of the hours, I pretty much, I had it made. I was only working the bench part-time. So it, again, gave you more time. And what do you do when you have more time? You spend more time with your friends. You spend more time drinking. And um, as time went on, the store grew even more. And it, and it got even busier. So then I hired a full-time pharmacist. Now I had a full-time pharmacist and I had a part-time pharmacist. So now I basically kind of hired myself out of a job because I didn't have to be there to work the bench. All I did was administrative stuff. 
And when all you have to do is administrative stuff and you don't have that patient responsibility, things can really take off. And they did, it got bad, real bad. And, um, you know, the, the fights with my uh, wife increased, my drinking got to be where that was really the only thing that was on my mind. I ended up divorced. It's just, um, you know, the years of normal drinking, you know, they tell you that at any given time you can become addicted. Well, I was a normal drinker for years, 30 plus years. And then all of a sudden I wasn't a normal drinker. So, all right. So after I got divorced, you know, I had my own house. I started to make wine. And I guess, according to my friends, I was great at making it. And I made a lot of it. And, the, you know, back even before I got divorced, the, the drinking all of the time, when it's really started to get got away, when it really got out of hand and started to get away, I'd wake up in the middle of the, the night, hot, racing, terrible anxiety. I couldn't fall back to sleep. So if I didn't have to work the bench the next day, you know, a shot or two or a large glass of wine, you fall back to sleep or pass out, you wake up the next day with, you know, literally having no sleep and the cycle just went over and over. You beat yourself to death. I'll never drink again. Yes, you will. You'll drink that night. Yeah. So, so, um, so, you know, uh, I'm making this wine and, um, you know, as I said, it just, it got so bad that um, I was gained a lot of weight. My blood pressure was out of control. I got yelled at by my doctor. He, he says, you know, you're borderline diabetic. He says, your blood glucose is uh, 117. In other words, your A1C is 5.9. Six is where they start to treat it. And then, so he says, so tell me, tell, you only drink one or two drinks. You only drink one or two at night, that's all. So, uh, I mean, I obviously was caught, you know, he knew that my uh, drinking had gotten out of control. And about that time, I guess this was somewhere in around 2015, around when my father passed was when I started to really get control. He died in August of 15. And that's when I started on the trying to moderate, which we already know what kind of show that was. That was terrible. And then my youngest granddaughter was born in March of 2016. And that's when I realized I can't moderate. I can't do this. I have to quit. So I tried do it yourself quitting. And that was impossible. You know, I'd be good white knuckling it for a week, a week and a half, two weeks. Then I started on quit lake books. And then I found a stop drinking course, you know, an online course. And I took that and it worked, but it didn't work. I could stop drinking for a week or two or a month or a month and a half, but I always felt empty. I always felt FOMO. I was always missing out. There was something that was wrong because alcohol was, was my obsession for so long that when I did quit 
and I could still see my friends that could enjoy a drink or could handle it. And I couldn't, you know, uh, th that's what I managed to get away maybe a month, two months would be the longest that I could go. And that went on for a year and a half, you know, then, you know, somebody in this program had suggested your book. And you know, I guess that was, I don't know, May, April or something of 2018. So I read it, I breezed right through it. And it was interesting. So then I read it slowly, but it didn't change anything for about a month. And all of a sudden, I don't know, the middle or end of June of 2018, I'm drinking it, drinking. I'm like, why do I have this? And I dumped it and I stopped. And I did really good for seven months. Then I got a phone call from my cousin in Florida. And he told me that his cancer was back Flash, well, his name's Gerard, we call him Flash. Um, he, uh, he said that his cancer was back. He'd been fighting cancer from age 53. Well, he was 59 then. And he said he only had four months to live. So I got on a plane and I flew down to Florida. So I walk in and he hands me an open beer and he says, we got to drink a couple of beers like old times. Well, I didn't have the tools for that. So I um, drank the beer. And I stayed down there for a week, week, eight days, 10 days, and got right back in at one or two. The next day it was two or three. And before the week was out, I was right back drinking. And so then when I flew back to New York, I, it dawned on me, what are you doing? You're going right back to the same spot that you were, that you fought all this time to try to get off of. So I read your book again, but you also wrote another book for me. That was around when the alcohol experiment came out. And I don't remember when it came out. All I know is I got the audio version in between this naked mind and the alcohol experiment. It worked. And so um, I've been good since then. You know, so people ask, well, when did you stop drinking? I don't know what to tell them. I don't know whether to tell them, okay, I quit drinking in the end of June of 18, or do I want to tell them I quit drinking after my slip in February of 19? I don't know. All I know is I'm done. And now when I look at it, it's, it, it just makes no sense. I look at it like a red can of jet fuel. Mm -hmm. I was at a camp. There were 10 of us at the camp. And this is recently, this is a month and a half ago. There were 10 of us at the camp, a 14 year old and 10 adults or 11 of us, a 14 year old and 10 adults. So they're all gonna do a, this celebratory shot. So they pour nine shots. So the one guy, Danny, turns to me, he goes, you're going to celebrate too, aren't you? I said, I'm going to drink that. He says, well, what if I pour it? I says, I'll walk over the door and throw it out in the yard. He says, really? I said, yeah. So then about a half hour later, this other guy, Bruce, comes up to me. He says, I'm really proud of you. I said, for what? He says, you could resist that. And that's when I told him. I says, let me tell you, Bruce. I says, Danny picked up a can of jet fuel and poured you guys all a shot. You guys all drank the same thing that's in your gas tank. And he looked at me and I, I, I said, that's how I see it. I says, uh, that's how I've seen it for like a year and a half. I, I, it doesn't even faze me anymore. And if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, coaching or working to try to get other people to where I am and what I think now, alcohol wouldn't even be in my, 
wouldn't even be in my uh, my scope at all. I wouldn't even see it. But it took me from the I guess the middle or end of 2015 until the middle of 2018 to quit. And uh, nobody should go through that. Not that long. And so about a year into quitting, I got thinking, you know, I got to see if I can help somebody do this. And I started writing to this naked mind, seeing whether or not they had any kind of uh, coach program. And I started, so I started writing sometime towards the end of 2019. And then I started to lose a little faith, like, God, ah, I'm never going to open any of this up. Well, then all of a sudden, the end of January, beginning of February of this year, 2020, I write a letter, I get a, a message back, and then all of a sudden I'm in an interview with Scott, and then another one, and then I'm in the program, and oh, it's the best. <laughs> and I truly, like I said, if I wasn't doing this, I'll close in a minute. But um, nobody should have to go through what I did that I, what I went through that three years of torture to quit. They shouldn't do it. And so um, that's the scoop. That's oh, I how I got here. And so that's how I got to, well, thank you very much for writing that book. <laughs> thank whoever gave me that tip back in the, you know, uh, April of 2018 for reading it. And, um, you know, I, I just, uh, love where I am now. It's people don't, they'd have no idea how awesome not having all of those headaches and stresses and everything. They have no idea until they get here. They don't, they don't have a clue. It's so, so true. So good. Um, all right. So i made a few notes because I have some, I didn't want to interrupt, but I want to talk about a few things specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my sons was recently at a, a friend's house and he came home and he's like, did you, do you know that um, this, the kid, the older of, of the brothers, and so he's friends with the younger brother, the older of the brothers, he's like, did you know that their mom lets him drink wine? And I was like, no, what, what was going on? He's like, yeah, they were opening their bottle of wine and he went and got his own little glass and they poured him just a little bit but it was just a little bit, but, you know, he, he sat there and, you know, my son and his, they're younger, so they weren't part of it, but this older child was there and still a child, not even a teenager yet. Um, and I, and I was sitting there and I was like, wow, like what, what is my, what is my role in this? Do I have any role in this besides just talking to my son or like, should I let this mom know that like, you know, statistically, this is one of the worst things you can do for your child's trajectory. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just, yeah, I want to understand, like, from your perspective, having that be part of your story. Well, here's, here's another perspective with that. Okay. They give you a little bit of alcohol at that young age. Well, statistically, I know that people that are given alcohol at a young age end up, you, a lot of them end up with an alcohol use disorder. They end up getting themselves into a problem with it. Now, the other thing that the parent doesn't know is 
that they've given this child this addictive substance, which causes their dopamine and serotonin release, and then they haven't given them any more. And so now you have this child running around with uh, anxiety within a withdrawal from a parent that has no idea. One of the things that's the most important thing, all right, I love the idea of being a coach and I love the thought of going into coaching, but my thoughts, the thing that I went into this for was to teach this message, to let the parents know, no, don't give the child the alcohol because, and give them the reasons. One, it predisposes them to thinking that it's fine and running into a problem with the, uh, the addiction later. But two, you're giving them something that you're, and you're just giving them a little, and then they're going to go away and end up with this anxiety and, you know, other pro problems associated with that little bit and withdrawing it while they're still awake. We as adults drink until we pass out. So we don't run into that withdrawal stuff. But when you just give a little kid some, that's one of the things that I see as a problem. One, you're teaching them, you're normalizing it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is you're giving them something that can hurt them. You know? so. Yeah, and, and you're sending this really, I mean, to the younger kids, like for, it was sending a very clear signal. You know, there's so many signals of like, when you get older, you get to do this. When you get older, you get to have this. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just sending a very clear signal to the older kid that look, I'm this age now, whatever they decided in their house, 12. Um, mm -hmm. And so I get to, and when you're older like me, it, it just really was reinforcing the whole um, how kind of grown up and special you are to get to do this. And right. yeah, it's just and interesting. It's, yeah, it's, and it is. And, and we felt, and it, you know, when you got into even your early teens, you like would look and kind of like pine for more than that little bit of, of beer because they've already given it to you in your, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old. Well, so you're already thinking, oh, this is something that's special that adults get to do. And when I get to be such and such an age, like 16, they'll give me a whole can. And when, you know, and it, it makes you think that it's special. And it also makes you talk to other kids, your, your peer group at 16 and 17. And they all get into it and you all get into it together. And it's... Uh, so that's one of the things that I want to do is to educate. Yeah. All right, here's, here's the thing. Do you know that in 1939, more doctors smoked Camel cigarettes than any other cigarette? Why? Because there was no research yet. And so when the research came out in the 60s, you know, now everybody had a different outlook on what cigarettes did. There were so many smokers, you know, and so, so in the 60s, by the, the time that came along, the people that had been smoking for 20 or 30 or 40 years, the damage is done. It's just like I even look at it with mine. I'm sure that I'll have some sort of a, an effect for drinking so long. But my generation, my grandchildren's generation, and even my kids' generation can be affected now by me teaching them 
and, and kind of spreading this word. That's more of an interest to me than, you know, co yeah, coaching is important, but getting this word to these younger generations and to their parents, like my children's parents, your age group, don't teach your kids this. Don't romanticize it. They look up to you. You are your, your, your generation or your children's first teachers. Teach them really what this is. So the reason I went back to the cigarettes is the research wasn't there in the, the 30s and 40s and 50s. That came out in the 60s. Well, now the research is here for alcohol. It was the end, late 80s that they declared it as a carcinogen. And the research is getting better and better and better. And they're finding out more and more and more about the effects of alcohol. Two, February, um, was it uh, August of 2018, Lancet magazines, no amount of alcohol is safe for human consumption. Global study says that was a 16 year study. And so, and that's where one of the spots where it came out that two glasses of wine a week can increase a girl's um, chance of uh, breast cancer by 10%. And that's one of the things, places where they get into binge drinking, five drinks in, I think it's five drinks in two hours for a man and four drinks in two hours. It's not always the liver disease that's going to get you. It's the cardiac effects. Alcohol speeds up your heart rate. It increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure. A lot of the damage is done by, you know, to the cardiac by the alcohol. Then I've taken that into consideration. So with this research to go after my gener my children's generation and their younger generation, you're going based like this naked mind, science-based. This isn't hearsay. This is real. This is reality. Just like back in the 60s with the cigarettes, this is real. You know, do you want to romanticize and teach your kids and put them in the same spot now that you know what it does? You know, that's... So then tell me, um, because all of these things and for people listening and being like, oh my gosh, I've, I've done that. And, and they're so consumed with regret and guilt. Um, how do you handle, how do you handle that? The regret and the guilt? Mm -hmm. You can only move forward, okay? The rear view mirror in your car is little. That's because you can't do anything about what's behind you. And you don't even need it if you're going fast enough forward. You don't even need it for changing lanes. The windshield is big. Look ahead, see where you're going to get. Worry about educating them now. You can't change what happened. You can only learn from it and go forward. And uh, so I had a conversation with a friend of mine today. This guy, Doug, and I have been friends for 35 years. Obviously, if we've been friends for 35 years and I only stopped drinking two and a half years ago, we drank a lot together. Doug's wife passed away. It'll be five years in February at 60 years old of a heart attack, cardiac. Rarely do I remember Deb without a drink in her hand. Binge drinking was a common thing. 
you know, and so this could have been her demise, had nothing to do with liver damage, had to do with what can happen with alcohol. So we got talking, he says, so do you drink anymore? He says, or do you still have a problem with it? Do I still have a problem with it? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but he says that he's real good at moderating. You know, he only has, you know, like most nights he'll only have like one drink or two drinks. Okay. I don't necessarily look at it as moderating, but that's, that's what he's talking about. And, you know, even, well, him and several friends, I don't get invited to as many parties now as when I drank because, and I don't know whether or not it's because they're nervous having me around because I don't drink or whether they look at their drinking as uh, maybe he stopped, maybe I should think about this. But anyway, to answer your question, what can you do about the guilt of, you know, having done that? You can't change it. You can explain it to them. You know, if you're like, I gave my children some when they got old enough and I explain to them now, that's, that's, uh, I shouldn't have done that. It's not the right approach. Don't do that with your children. And the, my three, all three kids don't drink. My daughter drank from age 16 to 21 and then quit. She hasn't had anything to drink in 16 years. <laughs> so um, my son-in-law had trouble and he, had, he stopped drinking when he and my daughter got together about 11 years ago. And um, my two boys, even the one that's in the military really doesn't drink. He did when he first, one of his tours, when he came home from Afghanistan, he drank pretty bad but he's, he's real good, doesn't drink at all. And the youngest just never really took it up. So the regret, you can't change what happened, learn from it and move forward. Try to re-educate where you made the mistake, let them know that you made that mistake and let them know what the, the right way to do it is. And hopefully they'll pass that on to their next generation, so. I love that. Um, so Jim, you are, you're so much fun to have as a coach and as part of the mastermind and you're always making jokes and making me laugh and you're so encouraging and positive. And I, I want to know, were you, were you always so happy and upbeat or is this? Yep. Yep. And that's what, you know, like some of my friends that don't invite me to parties, you know, they'll say when I do go, you know, they're like, you know, you don't really need any alcohol. You're just as good. In fact, they, they say you're faster and funnier without it. I said, exactly. I says, and I'll remember all of this. You guys, maybe you will, but you know, like you said with your son's birthday party, you can look at the pictures and not know. Mm -hmm. Well, they can think of the party and not know, but I do because I don't. And I love the mastermind and I love. The people, Becca, when she said that, you know, uh, they were going to love my accent during the, uh, when I was coaching in the November alcohol experiment. And I'm like, what accent? I don't have an accent. I'm fine. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, That's awesome. So, but some of the other, you know, so anyway, my thoughts, like I said, when it comes to coaching, I love being a coach. I love the fact that I got through this and, and did well. And I love the fact that I'm a, 
a coach in this Naked Mind Institute. It's awesome. But I would love to get, and, I, and I'm kind of procrastinator at heart, but I would like to come up with, or write some sort of a program for the kids or for the, for the parents to teach their kids, one, to recognize what the advertising industry is doing with normalizing or romanticizing or telling you that you're always supposed to feel good. I want the kids to learn how to recognize that stuff. And the other thing is, is all right, I was a pharmacist for 40 plus years. There were a lot of times that I counseled my patients based around whether or not they could drink. You know, they, well, can I drink with this? And I'd tell them whether, well, whether or not there was a serious interaction or whether they should drink less or whether they couldn't drink. Annie, I have had patients hand me back medication when I told them that they couldn't drink with it. Mm -hmm. It's like you give an antibiotic that you can't have any alcohol with. And I had a guy give it back to me because now I'll be, I'll be all right. I'll probably, I'll probably heal without this antibiotic. And so, all right. So being in healthcare my whole life, I look at a normal screening in healthcare. You know, they'll ask you when you go for your interview, how much do you drink? You know, so what's everybody's pat answer? Oh, one or two drinks a day or a couple of drinks a week. What if they asked a question like, when was the last time you had a significant break from alcohol, as in a dry January? The alcohol experiment, the live alcohol experiment, sober October. When did you take your last break from mm -hmm. alcohol? The surgeons and doctors and nurse practitioners, I, I got a tick on my neck. I went down and the physician's assistant that I've known for 30 years asked me, you know, we got into talking and I told her what I'm doing. And she says, well, I can't wait to get home and have, what was it she was having? A margarita. <laughs> she says, I can't wait to go home and have my margarita. I just, I've never had a problem drinking. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. But so health the healthcare industry, they, they have to understand how many SSRIs and SNRIs and anxiolytics and other medications are, are written for and dispensed to people to treat the side effect of the alcohol they drink. If they would be asking some of these screening questions differently, there would be better results in healthcare, which is another, the, the kids first, but the healthcare industry try to change the healthcare industry. Yeah. I love that. There's so much to do. It's crazy. I know. I know. That's why we need more and more people. That's why, you know, I think coaching is great. I like it. And I have three people in England, somebody in Florida, somebody in Oklahoma, somebody in California, and somebody in Australia. They're all over the place. It's great. Um, but I would rather look into some of this other stuff. It's not, I'm not, it's not about the money, it's about the education. It's about moving everybody in the right direction. Alcohol is the next cigarette. You know, it's about passing this down, passing the, passing the word. And so yeah, you, you keep um, donating all your earnings back to help other people get through the program. So <laughs> no, it's not about the money for you. What about that? Well, I, only, I didn't have all that many earnings. I just, <laughs> 
thought, I, you know, and so Lindy said, cool, can you kind of like write out a, a better uh, invoice? I'm like, I didn't write anything down. <laughs> so, but I will. But anyway, yeah, because it's not about, it's, it wasn't about that. It was about the experience of being able to coach in the live alcohol experiment. It would be about the experience of being able to coach in the path. It would be about going, being able to go to a church group or a school and give a presentation on some of the things that we're discussing here. It's not about the, the I, I'm good. You know, I did okay. I'm comfortable, you know, being retired. I, I did good with my pharmacy career and my pharmacy. So it's not, I'm not doing it now for money. I'm doing it to keep other people from not having to go through what I did and to keep other people from, you know, uh, not getting fallen into it by the alcohol industry that thinks nothing of telling you that you're supposed to feel good at, all of the time. You're not supposed to feel good all the time. You're supposed to feel everything. Yeah. And you can't do it if you're numb and everything. So. So true. All right. So I have one more question for you before my last two questions. So I guess that's really three more questions. Um, so you talked about sleep and you're like, well, maybe it's hereditary. So tell me, tell me about sleep now that you're not drinking. It's amazing. I mean, <laughs> so, so it wasn't hereditary. It be all of like 10 minutes to fall asleep. I, I mean, I do, uh, you know, and that's one of the problems with having somebody in England and having somebody in Australia is you're all screwed up. You're on this electronic stuff all of the time. But, it, you know, it, it's, it only takes about 10 minutes once I shut all of my blue screens down to fall asleep. I will normally get up once during the night. And then, um, and it's not always me that's, it's usually me that has to get up, but sometimes it's the dog gets me up. I have this new puppy Aww. who is kind of in the picture crawling up my leg in yesterday's mastermind. But no, sleep is, sleep is wonderful. Other things that are wonderful, my A1C has gone down to 5.3, which is normal. My blood pressure medication is down to less than half of what it used to be on. And, you know, uh, since I quit drinking, I probably lost 30 pounds. So a lot of good things have happened, you know, oh, but awesome. sleep is wonderful. You know, You'll, I wake up refreshed every day. All right, Jim. So where can people find you? At thisnakedmind.com slash coaching. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I don't know, you've seen, you've seen my um, uh, website. So you've seen my little uh, picture on that. Okay. So what the name of my website is no alcohol coaching, K-N-O-W alcohol coaching. It's all written in green, except for the word no in no. It's K-N-O-W, but the middle two letters are red. Okay, in the green word. Okay, that's because once you know K N O W alcohol, you will want no alcohol. Ooh, I like okay. it. So now when you look at the design, there's a pot of gold. That pot of gold is alcohol free. Okay, there's a rainbow behind the pot of gold. And the point of the rainbow points to the word N O, no, no alcohol. 
So that's where that design came from. Because alcohol-free is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So. Perfect. Noalcoholcoaching.com. K-N-O-W. Awesome. Yeah. So. All right. So let me ask you the question that I always end on. And that is, if you were going to go back in time and um, talk to Jim, who, you know, kept <laughs> working fewer and fewer hours, drinking more and more, and just getting caught up in the whole thing, what would you tell him about what life is like now? I would tell him to wake up sooner. You know, when I started to have the, tr the trouble you know, the, the less I worked and the more I drank, the more anxiety and depressed I got and the more isolated, you know, like in, uh, into myself I got, there was no connection. It was all, you know, uh, the same. I would tell them to, to wake up, <laughs> wake up a lot sooner, you know, and um, that, that would be it. It's, uh, the whole way society looks at alcohol, especially when I was, especially when I was younger, and alcohol has been around for 10,000 years. It's a drug. It's the deadliest drug on the planet. It's the most abused drug on the planet. And it's not, they call it drugs and alcohol. What about like drugs? It is a drug. Right. People don't get that. But so, uh, yeah, so I would shake myself and say, wake up, you know, there's a reason why all of these things are going wrong. You're gaining weight, your blood pressure is ridiculous, you're almost diabetic, your marriage ended. There's a reason why all of this is going on. Why, you know, wake up, you know, so. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This has just been awesome. I love hearing your story. It. Love your accent. It's just been well, accent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an accent. So, uh, <laughs> But anyway. Hi, super exciting news. So the alcohol experiment book is being released, actually got released just a few days ago with the expanded edition. What does expanded edition mean? It means that every single day throughout the book, there are deep reflective journal entries that have been added with space to write, which is so cool and so exciting. So you really make it your own. And the reason I did this is because I truly believe that the deepest wisdom you will access throughout the 30 days of the alcohol experiment comes from within you. You know more about what's best for you than anybody else in the entire world. And I know sometimes that can be hard to believe, but when you really access your own wisdom, it is so profound. So you can pick up your own copy at alcohol experiment book com and check it out. It's really powerful. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.